Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of Star Joe's. This is episode 221, John and Travis Unravel the Scrooge Mystery. I'm your host, John, and believe it or not, for the second time since the podcast has been around, our fearless leader's not with us. It's unbelievable, I know, and for those of you keeping score at home, I was involved in the last one that didn't have have Ryan, and my guest tonight was too. I want to welcome Travis back to the show. How you doing, my friend? Doing great. Uh, living that lovely Ohio weather life right now, and uh, lost a little bit of my voice on Friday, but you know, other than that, things are good. Well, I, I'm super excited we're able to do this, and just a little bit of backstory. Travis contacted me about this amazing docu- documentary, as it were, that had come out uh, regarding Don Rosa and Scrooge McDuck and said, hey, I got a copy of this documentary and would love for you to watch and love to talk about it. And we talked to Ryan and he said, hey, why don't you guys do an episode about it? So we're going to talk a bit about kind of our experiences with with Don Rosa and with with the Scrooge McDuck character in the series and a little bit about this particular film that was made about them. And uh, yeah, just share our thoughts and experiences. So Travis, um, tell me a little bit about your background when it comes to Scrooge McDuck and and the, you know, I know we're going to talk about kind of the difference between Disney and ducks and what have you, but what was your initial experience or exposure to these characters? When I was growing up back in my day, since we're the grandpas of we're Grandpa Star Joe's, both of us. Uh, no, um, I was I was born in in eighty one. I know you're a little bit before my before me. Um, but growing up, when I would get comics from my dad, it was always Spider Man, and either like Donald Duck or Uncle Scrooge. And uh, my dad would just pick them off a shelf or we would go to a flea market and he would grab a handful here or there. And, you know, once I got to the reading age in first grade, first it was the pictures. And then when I got to the reading age, um, DuckTales was obviously a big thing, but I had all of these uh, Donald Duck and Scrooge comics. And I finally started reading them. And, you know, this is at a time I'm seven, eight, nine, even 10 years old. I didn't pay attention to the artists or the writers. It was an Uncle Scrooge comic or it was a Spider-Man comic. Like, yes, I could pick up the differences. Like I would look at a, you know, say a John Romita Spider-Man. I was like, that's a cool looking Spider-Man. But then when I would read a Marvel Tales and see a Steve Ditko, I'm like, man, Spider-Man must have put on a weird costume. Like my mind just didn't differentiate the artist other than, you know, that's Spider-Man or that's Scrooge. Um, and then, you know, I, I grew up loving DuckTales and and reading, you know, what was a majority of Don Rosa's Scrooge work. And I didn't realize it was Don Rosa's Scrooge until my first Baltimore. Then we when we went to the first Baltimore Comic Con and you see his booth and he's got all of the uh, prints up and, you know, this is not DuckTales and all of that. And it's like, wow, let me, you know, because I still have a the majority of my books. They're in terrible, terrible shape. But I went back and looked and like, oh, my gosh, like I've read all of this. And oddly enough, I never had read 
the life and times of Scrooge McDuck, his magnum opus of, of Scrooge. Um, so then I went and found the trade of the life and times of Scrooge McDuck and have gone back since and, and reread uh, his entire work uh, through Fanographics. And it's great. And, you know, that was that was my that's how I got into Scrooge and how it kind of oddly enough, you know, reading his stuff and then finally meeting the man and, you know, the the essentially the Wizard of Oz, the man behind the curtain. And holy cow, is he a man behind the curtain? <laughs> Absolutely. What about what about yours? I know he's a local guy for you. So yes, my experience with Don Rose is a little different uh, growing up in Louisville. I was exposed to Don Rosa. It was initially a, as a cartoonist, uh, did a strip in the local paper called Captain Kentucky. And it was all about this superhero in the Louisville area. And so it had a lot of local references and what have you. And uh, like you said, I have a few years on you. And so in the late 80s, I went to a comic book art exhibit at the local art museum. And Don Rosa was going to be there. And it was right at the time that his... Gladstone Uncle Scrooge comics were coming out. So I, I can't remember the exact story, but it was one of the earliest, if not the first issue that Rosa did, you know, an original story of Scrooge for Gladstone. And so I went to this art exhibit and got a chance to meet him. He is a very interesting individual, but he was very, very nice. And especially to, like I've always said, some young schmuck had a couple of comic books and had a Captain Kentucky, uh, digest or, you know, a collection that they had done, he signed all my books and talked to me for a few minutes and, you know, didn't do a, Hey, go away, kid, you bother me kind of thing, you know, treated me very nicely. And so I was always a fan in that regard. And over the years, I, I'll be honest, I lost track of the Scrooge books. You know, I, I didn't, I missed DuckTales that I was in high school. It was not my thing. So, you know, I, I remember the, the, the funny books and certainly knew the Carl Barks books. But yeah, I kind of lost touch. And then I started going to shows and I'd see Don Rosa. I'm like, holy crap, that's Don Rosa, like from Louisville. <laughs> and here he is, now. <laughs> you know, have these huge, you know, huge walls of prints. And he'd have that chair sitting on the other side of him for people to sit in so that when he does sketches that you can sit with him. And I'll tell you the most striking person I've ever seen sitting down talking to him do you know, remember the Lopez brothers that played basketball in the NBA? Brooke and I can't yeah. remember the other brother. So they're both comic book collectors. And oh, I believe wow. it was Brooke because we only knew them. We knew them, obviously, we knew they played basketball, but my kids knew them from Disney XD commercials way back when. One of them was okay. in Charlotte at Heroes walking around. Here's this seven foot tall dude. He sticks out big time. <laughs> and I'll never forget, Jacob was probably 10 or 11. And he's like, oh, that's, I think it was Brooke Lopez. That's Brooke Lopez. And I was like, why don't you go get a picture with him? He's like, no, I don't want to do it. I'm like, that'd be awesome because he was so small compared to this big dude. But Brooke Lopez was sitting right. in the chair across from Don Rosa getting a Scrooge sketch. And I always thought that was really, really cool. That was kind of my, you know, I've seen, seen other people in line with him, but that's probably the most unique <laughs> setup because even when he sat in that chair, boy, he was still, you know, six foot tall in the chair. He probably looked like like we were trying to sit in a kindergarten or an elementary school yeah, chair. That's, that's about and what he's in a regular chair. That's about what it looked like. So, yeah. So, no, again, you know, have seen Mr. Rosa over the years at conventions and then 
uh, some of you that have listened to the show for a while may recall in Baltimore last year, Travis actually got me a Captain Kentucky sketch from from Mr. Rosa, and that was uh, one of the highlights of the show for me. And then, like I said, I guess a, a month or so ago, you sent me a note and said, hey, there's this documentary coming out, and would you be interested in seeing it? So talk to me a little bit about how you found out that this thing even existed. I, I watch Kickstarters a lot just from comics or technology. Oh, gosh, I think I had backed like the Larry Hama action figures and there was like something you might be interested in. And I'm scrolling and I'm scrolling and it said Don Rosa. Gosh, not Don. What was his? Uh, Keen, Kine, Keen? Kino. What's his? Kino. Kino Don Rosa. Yep. Kino Don Rosa. Uncle Scrooge, horrible, was it? Uncle Scrooge Unraveled? Uncle, un, I saw it, and I love documentaries. And when I saw it, it just, I wanted to know more. I wanted to, to hear his side because, as you know, like when you, when you meet Don, or if you're lucky enough to meet Don Rosa at a convention, he does. He has, a, has his own chair he has his own batch of sharpies you bring your paper and he has a chair across the way and you sit down and what he'll ask what would you like and you can pick you know any of the ducks and any of the expressions and he personalizes it to you but as as you sit there you you sit and you have a conversation with him. and my first few conversations i didn't know what to say because like i said he has a sign also, right in front of them, that says, "This is not Ducktales. Do not ask." <laughs> so immediately, I'm like, "Well, I know not to talk about Ducktales." So, and I don't remember any of the stories that he's written. So, the first conversation was awkward. Just the basic, you know, tell me about Uncle Scrooge. Well, I drew Uncle Scrooge from this, and he's he's very short, very abrupt, very. Matter of fact, I guess. Not so much rude or a know-it-all, but he's just very, like I said, matter of fact. I've met him. I, I go see him every time I'm at Baltimore uh, because he's always there. And my conversations get more, uh, better and better. You know, this last year, I, I actually sat and talked to him for a half hour while he was doing your Captain Kentucky. And I've always just been intrigued, but then I've also wanted to find out if he was, I, I almost wanted to call his bluff because there were times when he would say, and he would look at me in that matter of fact way. And he goes, you do realize, sir, that uh, there are people in Europe at this time that would love to be in your position and get a drawing from me right now. I'm not a veteran of cons by any means, but like, this is a guy that has two, maybe three people in line at any given time. But then he's alone a lot of the time. And I just never, you can't be, you're, you're just tooting your own horn. Like it, it just, it didn't seem to add up to me. So it, it was more of like, I wanted to know more, you know, after reading a lot of his work. But I also wanted to see like, you know, this wasn't made in America. And you can even tell by the subtitles when they're subtitling throughout the, the documentary, like there are misspellings because the guy doesn't know how to properly translate. And I will say a, a Flint Hart Glomgold statement, 
I will eat my own hat now because I'll be damned if he wasn't telling the truth the whole time. <laughs> so when I saw it, I backed it and I got the Blu-ray and it came and, you know, sadly the the Baltimore that this was recorded at was the one that Graceland was born. So I couldn't be there. I found out about it and like I said, my love of documentaries, my love of comics, and the intrigue of Don Rosa, it, w it was just a win-win all, all around. You took part in the Kickstarter, which I'm glad you did. You watched it. I had a chance to watch it last week. And so let's break it down a little bit, You know, talk about the, the different chapters and what have you, and you know, kind of our experiences and what your thoughts were. I will say at the outset, I mentioned to you before we started recording, my wife actually watched this with me, and Heidi has never read, I don't believe she's ever read an Uncle Scrooge comic. She has seen my Captain Kentucky sketch and doesn't really get it. She absolutely loved it, which is a ringing endorsement for somebody that, you know, she also enjoys, doc and I love documentaries, especially, you know, we've had, we've been really lucky. You know, if you think about, especially from a Star Joe's perspective in the last few years between Power of Grayskull and the toys that made us, and there, you know, there are a lot of great things in our space. I don't know how many other comic book documentaries like this are floating around, but again, to your point, especially coming from overseas and, and having a, a bit of a different perspective because of it, I, I, I couldn't believe it. It was great. So given that little bit of spoiler away, but maybe let, talk a little bit about the breakdown or about the, about the documentary itself. The documentary is, I guess it's filmed on actual film from what I could tell. Is that like, was it eight millimeter film and then just upscaled? Is that what you could I tell for yeah, some I of this? So. It was an interview between the director and Don, and it took place seemingly over a weekend at Don's house down there in Louisville. Louisville, Louisville, Louisville. or Louisville? Do I Louisville. swallow the second syllable? <laughs> okay. Louisville. But what they did is it was almost like a light box. They took out the, they, they put a, I guess, a sheet of glass on his, for his drafting table. And he would put a sheet of paper down and he would start drawing. And he, he was drawing the different phases of Scrooge throughout the life and times of Scrooge McDuck. But as he was drawing the early parts or, you know, the middle parts, he would talk about his own life. And, you know, it started off, uh, you know, chapter one of uh, his grandpa and his dad and, and, you know, being born in Louisville and how his dad and grandpa owned a giant tile company that was huge down in Louisville. And I wanted to ask you, do you, do you remember, like, was this a giant staple in Louisville? His, uh, the tile company that his dad and grandpa you ran. Know, I, it's funny. I if it was, I don't recall. In other words, it was not like a, a major employer, okay. or you know, you didn't go to the Rosa Tile Company necessarily to buy tile directly. I thought that the the way they framed up the conversation, and especially showing the the camera work from under the drawing table was genius. I, I thought that was absolutely an amazing way to do it. Yes. And it was so neat to see him as he would complete it. He's then coloring it in with the markers and doing you know, great you know, color work. And I thought that part was, was really, really interesting. 
couldn't believe that the fact that they changed his name what after about a year of he was born and he did not have the name Kino, yeah, which was Giacchino, I believe, for the you know for his grandfather. But I, I think if I understood correctly, the grandpa paid dad a thousand dollars to change his name. <laughs> That's insane. That is absolutely yeah. insane. That, he paid him a thousand dollars to change it so he could uh, be the rightful heir to the tile company, wasn't yeah, it? And, like and because as a sign he, of respect. I just yeah, it was so funny to to, to you know. Can you imagine? You know, you have a son. I have a couple sons. Imagine, you know, your parents or my parents calling me and saying, "Yeah, change, change the kid's name. We'll give you a thousand dollars to do it <laughs> or add to it." It didn't. His name was Don Rose. Added the Kino. Right. I, I just I, that was a fascinating story. And what was really cool, they were talking about their, especially as a young adult. One of the people that was on the documentary was a guy named Ray Fouché. And I got really excited. In fact, I texted you during the documentary to say, hey, Ray Fouché's in this thing. When yep. I was a kid, he was on one of the local access. It was Channel 41, which at the time was like UHF, right? I mean, it was high end. Now it's a Fox affiliate. But in the 70s, 60s, 70s, early 80s, it was this you know, standalone station that, if you can believe this, my friend put together a, a petition to get Ultraman put on in like in like 80 like we were kids and my friend his brother knew about oh, Ultraman wow. so like as a kid we were watching Ultraman I could yeah anyway Ray Fouché was on this channel and he would actually do like afternoons he was like a almost like a radio personality just a television personality and he would be on and he would introduce like black and white, old black and white movies. And when they did 3D movies like Creatures from Black Lagoon, he was the guy. He was the host. And so when I saw Ray Fouché, I flipped out because I was like, holy cow, I've not seen this guy since the 80s. And it was so cool to see. I didn't know he grew up with Don, that they were friends. I couldn't believe, like I said, I haven't seen Ray Fouché as a kid. He, They kind of got away from that in the when they went to Fox in the late 80s. They a lot of that uh, old school stuff went away. So a lot of you probably don't remember. Like lo we had a local clown, right? Like Bozo, but in Louisville, that kind of stuff that they did. Way and so right. that was really really cool to see him. I'm all I was obviously all grown up, and he is a much older gentleman now. But it was neat hearing him talk about his friend and talk about comics and how involved they were. That was really cool. It's like you said, it was a different time. Every studio, essentially, you know, kind of sidebar. It, it's like Memphis Wrestling, Studio Wrestling. You know, they had the studio and they had the ring there. And, you know, you had, that's where your local everything took place in in the studio from Bozo to, to all that. And it's, you kids these days don't know what you're missing. No. Well, so, but he goes to, he gets, he goes through school. He, he does not pursue a comic book career, which is or an art career. He was a engineering major, which I thought was interesting that, you know, I think it, yes, I think we know that we can certainly see it in his draftsmanship and his craftsmanship as a creator. That engineering experience really shines through later on. Oh, absolutely. I, I think one of the things that really blew me away too, was that, he has kept everything he ever did. So he has these comics that while he didn't pursue it as a profession, he was drawing comics in grade school and he has all of them. That was amazing, Travis. I mean, I don't know about you, but yeah, you know, my kids gave me stuff a year ago. I don't necessarily know where it is. Imagine having all the comics you had drawn for yeah, the last I, 60 years. 
and knowing where it's at, like because he's at, when as he's going through these these drawings in this interview, like it was it was like a sidebar, and he goes, "Oh, I remember drawing my first comic at five or six or or whatever." He said, and the the director goes, "Oh, do you?" He goes, "You know, can you tell me about it?" And he just stops and looks at him matter of factly and goes, well, "Yeah, would you like to see it?" Absolutely. And then like they stop and they get up and he goes and grabs. It was almost like a. it was just a little notebook, almost like a daily planner. He didn't care that the lines were all over it. And he said that and he drew a comic and kept it. And then he's got every like you said, every other type of comic that he's ever drawn. It's it's almost an OCD, I think, or uh, hoarding isn't the right word. It's definitely different from today's everything's digital, minimalistic view. Or, or you have creators that <laughs> you have these creators that will burn their old work because they don't think it's good. So you know, <laughs> what, right? What a, what a what a mentality shift! What a mentality shift! His passion, like you were saying, like even though he went and got his in his uh, major in engineering, his passion, and he always did say that was drawing or i guess funny booking but he just never his analytical mind he never really could find a way to make money off of it and all he wanted to do was make people laugh so you know in in high school he did the the comics for that and then when he got into college he was a freshman and he didn't he, he say he was the only freshman that was published in the college's newspaper only because he was drawing the funnies for it. He uh, he started drawing the funnies, and which led him. And this is where it got a little blurry for me. Maybe I I dozed off. Maybe you can help me with this. But didn't he say like right out of college, while he was collecting comics, that the that's where he started doing the underground work. He he was doing yeah he was doing some underground stuff, and again while it was not a his career and I don't think he thought he was going to be able to focus on it. He was, he was doing it for fun and had some connection, you know, had, had the ability to do it. He would do Donald duck snuff films essentially, but in comic form because they were in these underground uh, comics. And I, you know, it's crazy how he, what he just thought was fun and funny and how it evolved into, to what it did. I think one of the things we, we missed and it was, you know, from a childhood perspective is that Rosa was significantly younger than his sister. And so even as a little kid, I don't know about when you first got into comics, but you know, I was a little older. I had a, a few random things, but really didn't get involved until GI Joe started. And we all know that story. You know, he had a collection from his sister and part of that was inc included those old duck yes. books and, and the Carl Barks things. Some of the people listening may not be very familiar with Carl Barks. You know, talk a little bit about him and who he was and, and how he was so, he was key in this whole thing. I mean, this is really the reason Rosa is who he is, is because of him. Carl Barks actually created Scrooge McDuck. And while it is a Disney property, it was not, cre he was not created by anybody within Disney. Like he was, he was originally a comic before he ever made it into any animated feature. And uh, Carl Barks drew and wrote all of these Scrooge stories from, I guess it was the Silver Age, wasn't it? Like it wasn't Golden Age. 
he would do all of these, you know, if you're familiar with Silver Age books, there there were no really overarching stories. Everything was a one and done. And especially when you're working with a Disney book and it's made for children of six to 10, they're not going to remember an overarching story. So he would have these stories and they were not even digest, but there were multiple stories within the comic. So it was maybe four five page stories in one uh, Uncle Scrooge book. And Don read those and he said that in his mind they were they were better than the TV shows and the movies that he was doing. And once he got into all of these different stories, he wanted to start piecing everything together because Carl Barks were, were was telling real stories, but in a duck world, you know, that they even talk about that, about, you know, in the duck world, everybody's a duck, but they don't look like a duck. Uh, she was that first chapter girl that talked about how she didn't, she majored or she got a doctrine or did wrote a, a thesis on Don Rosa's work and Carl Barks work with, with all of the duck world. So yeah, again, how different is it that overseas someone went to school and studied Barks and Rosa and, and basically made a point of saying, you know, these are animals that are dealing with human issues and problems and have jobs and wear clothes and they just happen to have built duck bills. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And that that's what it is. It's real. It's real life. Like, you know, it was funny stories and, you know, an adventure here, an adventure there, but it took place in a world and things kept, you know, there were, it was the first, you know, I dare say the first universe before the Marvel universe. If you want to, I mean, I don't know necessarily when it coincides, but there was more of a universe going on between the ducks than when Marvel started connecting the dots. Well, at some point, you know, Rosa ends up, he's working, he's do, he's be, he's an engineer, he's doing these underground comics for fun. He ends up drawing the Captain Kentucky strip, which is what I grew up kind of was familiar with. And then lo and behold, the opportunity to actually work on these duck properties comes up. How that, how that, kind of crazy. He said that, oh gosh, who did he, he gave his, he was friends with, the two owners of Gladstone because they would go they, to the comic convention. Yeah. They were fans that ended up getting the license. Yeah. How crazy is that in today's Disney dominated billion dollar world that essentially two friends, it'd be the equivalent of you and I making a pitch to Disney and them going, Oh man, we got to make comic books, do whatever you want and giving <laughs> us the rights <laughs> to Disney. And you know, it, it just, that blew my mind too. Like, you know, you, you never think of it like that, but holy crap. So he knew the guy, I, I don't remember their names right off the top of my head, but he, he knew, uh, I'm looking at it right now, Brian Erickson, well, the editor, and called him up, said, hey man, it is my destiny to do an Uncle Scrooge book. And I have one story in me that I want to to do. And Brian, being his friend, said, 
Okay. And Don Rose's first story is, uh, it's called The Son of the Sun, which it's also very loosely the the first uh, five-part DuckTales episode are based off of, where he introduces Flint Heart Glom Gold, and they're, you know, looking for the sundial, and it took place after a different, I, I can't remember which Carl Bark story, but it, it was the first time that it, it was taking source material from Carl Barks and then him expounding on it and, and going through. And he did it, he got it out, and then it got nominated for a Harvey Award. And I think, I don't remember exactly what he said he went up against, but he was going, like, he was the only independent uh, book going up against Marvel, DC, big hitters at the time. And he was shocked. And I, I think even Gladstone was shocked. And then his one Scrooge story then turned into an ongoing run of uh, duck stories. Or Uncle Scrooge stories. One of the things that we were talking about before we got on, Travis, and hoping you'll talk a little bit more about it, because I know it was something you really picked up on, the, the draftsmanship. We talked earlier, you know, about the fact that, you know, he has an engineering background and obviously was drawing comics as a kid. But talk a little about kind of what you saw there. And it's it's interesting, even in the cover to the DVD, it has this kind of split drawing, almost like a blueprint of Rosa and Uncle Scrooge, and it's got numbers and, you know, degrees written on and all, but talk a little bit about kind of what, you know, kind of what you saw and, and what really blew you away at what he talked about in the documentary that way. In the Don Rosa way, at some conventions, uh, you don't see it at Baltimore. Um, I've seen it at C2E2. Um, they may do it at Heroes. I, I don't know, John, you'll have to correct me, but they normally do a, a live draw where they will, throughout the weekend, bring up a artist from Artist Alley, put them on uh, an overhead, and for an hour you can watch any artist at any given time go through drawing a commission. And, you know, Don Rosa said, hey, will you show us how you draw Uncle Scrooge? And Don's immediate, re immediate response is, well, I could show you the wrong way to draw Uncle Scrooge. And he goes in and freehands, you know, a, a basic head sketch or a, a portrait of Uncle Scrooge, which looks exactly like any printed work that that you would see. Uh, I mean, John, you've seen his commissions minus a couple intricate details. It it's a fairly good commission. Am I am I correct? I definitely know it's Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> no, it's either. They're they're very very well done. Yeah, very simple. Line works very simple, but it's really well done. Right, and then they were kind of talking about that and how he his uh, retina detached from his eye, and they were talking about that and how he was going to go blind. And he go uh, the director asked, you know, well, what do you mean like the proper way to the right way to draw Uncle Scrooge and he says, well, hold on a second. Let me get my my drafting tools and this and that. And he pulls out 
I don't know what the tool is called. You know, Shannon and Brian are going to probably be screaming in their phones or iPhone. But like, what are, what what is that with all of those different degree circles and ovals? Do you know the name of that tool? French curve or one of those pieces like that. The best way I can say it, imagine a flat plastic piece. It was like a stencil with a million different degree circles around it. And, you know, you could just go through. If I was three years old, I'd grab my pencil and just circle everything around it. But each of them had their own different degree. And without missing a beat, you know, Don Rosa would go, well, the top or the beak or the top of uh, the top of Scrooge's hat is uh, 22 degrees. And he put the little circle down and did a 22 degree half circle. And with that, you have to have the right indention of the hat. So each of the hats are the indentions of the hat have to be this degree. And he's puts it up again and draws the the half circles. And the top bill has to be is the protruding dominant bill. And that is this degree. And the hair that comes out the side of his cheeks in the back, it has to be a perfect circle. And that is a 30 degree circle. So he shows a you know, a light circle and connects each of the hairs to where the hair, if you were to draw the circle around the edge of each of those hair follicles, would be a perfect circle. And he memorized all this. And I've seen Shannon draw and I've seen Brian draw and I, they're both amazing, but I've never seen anybody go into this sort of intricacy. And he said that that is why he doesn't do published work anymore. He said he would get almost a half an inch away from his drawing, the 11 by 17 drafting board with all of these stencils and these tools. And he did this for every panel because he, he wanted to, I don't know if he's that much of a perfectionist or if he respected the source so much that he, he felt like he owed it to himself, to the readers and and who else may ever see it? And it just, it, it blew my mind that he wanted to put that much effort into it, but also that he remembered, well, the hat is this many degrees and this and this, and then the eyeball is this. But then if you, if he's at a three quarter, the back has to be a smaller degree. and They connect here. And it was just, it blew my mind that, that he would put that much effort, that he would want to put that much effort into it knowing that he was barely making the bills paid. And he even said that he knew that he figured out how to get the bills paid. And he put his heart and soul into this work and barely paid the bills. And it just, it, it blows my mind. He certainly uh, is an incredible draftsman. I think, I don't know about you. I certainly didn't appreciate that when I was reading it as a younger person probably certainly didn't pick up on some of those things, you know, in terms of the consistency, right? You know, you, you figure, oh, it's Scrooge McDuck, it's Scrooge McDuck, it's Scrooge McDuck. But to have that kind of thought process and to say, this is what it's going to be when he talked about every panel. Yeah. And it was really interesting when he did talk about the, the issues he had with his vision. And thankfully he did not go blind in that eye. I have a feeling the documentary may have been a little different 
we may not have seen him as at as many events as we would have seen because he did talk about how the the death perception and drew drew a panel and then drew a panel kind of on its side and how it affected what he did and i i've noticed over the years he definitely does big sketches you know it seems like you know eight and a half by 11 or bigger and and i didn't it i did not know that story about his yeah. about his vision issues it makes a lot more sense certainly understand why he's not doing any published work anymore again i guess gained an appreciation for what he did so he's doing these gladstone stories he starts working with egmont in europe and then he gets tasked with the magnum opus as it were the life and time of Scrooge mcduck and you know, yeah. again, as the documentary goes through the chapters that, you know, he's, he's the, the different drawings are, are from those different periods of Scrooge's life. But now all of a sudden he's doing this and boy, what a, what a, what a magnum opus it is. It is. And he, I, it's very hard to pick up because he's very humble about it, but then he's also very nonchalant about it. Like, cause didn't he say like the editor came up to him and said, we have to have a story, an overarching story. And he was still doing the one and dones. And he said, well, we have to have a story. And then Disney was going to, I think this was right before DuckTales, but Disney was going to start having their own origin of Uncle Scrooge and the combination of they have to have an overarching story with his uh, disdain, to say the least, of Disney and wanting to respect the source material of Carl Barks, he dove in headfirst, and he did. He has he wrote I think twelve issues of the life and times of Scrooge McDuck, and these are dense books. Like story wise, it's dense, like it's great. These comics are I've read it twice, but you sit down. These are not quick reads because. And they're not Bendis books with talking heads, but they're they're just they're wordy. But it, you get so much out of the story that at the end you you just appreciate it. And you know, I, I would love to see. I know he didn't care, but I would love to see some sort of animated feature or DVD box set of you know a, an animated feature of the life and times of Scrooge McDuck. I don't think we're ever going to see it, unfortunately, with uh, the powers that be. I think he certainly has a lot of disdain for Disney. He certainly he makes that very apparent, not only in his signs at the conventions, but, you know, in the documentary. And he really does talk a lot about the fact that it boils down to greater rights. And I mean, he even said it. Disney's not going to give him money for things that he did, because if he do it for him, he's going to do it for everybody else. Obviously, he wants to preserve what Barks did. and maintain that wants to segment it out from Disney, but let's face it, unfortunately it's kind of a losing proposition. <laughs> it's just not gonna it's not gonna happen. Yeah. Then he copyrighted his own name, wasn't it? And he did. He said, you know, they were making money off of him, off of his name. And oddly enough, his name once again, you know, goes back to his birth. His dad got a thousand dollars to add keto, and now his name is what was being what was missing from all of these stories. And while they were being reprinted thousands of times, and you know, overseas, and kind of transitions into this next piece where 
I know, John, you've talked to him and I've talked to him. When you go see Don at a convention, he's not very busy a lot of the time. You know, he'll have people around him. He will a lot of times uh, bring in a large, an international uh, fan base because these fans love and respect his work so much. And like I said, I this is where I'm going to eat my hat. You know, one of the first times I talked to him, I was I knew what the art game was, so I asked him. I said, you know, could I please get a commission of Uncle Scrooge? And he said, yeah, sit down. And we talked about it to break the silence. Like the first thing he said was, you know, if this was Germany or wherever overseas, I wouldn't be doing this for you right now. But if you would like a second sketch, you are more than glad to follow my rules and go to the end of the line because I wanted to get one for my mom. But and you, you are more than welcome to go to the end of the line. And once you stand through that line again, I will gladly draw you a another Donald Duck. And like I look back and there are three people in line. So to accommodate who I, what I think at the time is the crazy old man, I get up and go to the back of the line, wait about 20 minutes and, hey, nice to see you again. How about that Donald Duck we talked about? We had touched on it earlier with, People were doing their college thesis on this. They did a comparison. They showed him at Baltimore in, what was it, 2017? I think so. Probably 17. And at a signing in, was it Germany or part of England? I thought it was Finland. Some crazy castle tower at Finland. It may have been. It was one of the Nordic countries. And that was one of the most fascinating things about it was that they show him in Baltimore. A handful of people are walking by. Young, a young girl got a print from him, maybe got a sketch. Then the director starts asking him, hey, can you go ahead and start working on the next portrait for you know the chapter and, and the documentary? And the next thing you know, they show him overseas, and literally the line is out the door and down the street, and there's a young woman there who is explaining to a woman that it's in the line, you know, you're going to get an autograph but I don't think you're going to get a sketch because you're going to have to get back in line and the line's over 400 and she's got tears in her eyes. It was, it was unbelievable. I mean, he is truly a rock star and he had a line literally down and around the door and people, and she kept saying, you can get back in line. You're going to, you, you, there are 400 people in front of you and I don't know, but you know, you're probably not. And and this young, young girl is just on the verge of tears trying to figure out if she's going to be able to get get a sketch and get the autograph and, and meet, get five minutes with Rosa. He's the equivalent. Yeah, like he's the equivalent of, I would say, a Jim Lee here in America or... Or a Greg um, Capullo or... Who's another? Uh, Greg Capullo. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think it goes to the fact that so much of what he did and what Barks did, there is a universality to it. You know that, and they translated all these stories into other languages, and they they have this huge following. Part of it's cultural, you know. Part of it is what what is, but it was just fascinating to watch that line and to see that, especially this, I I would say, young person, so emotional. (laughs) I mean, I don't know about you, Travis. You've done it for a while. I've never gotten emotional meeting anybody (laughs) that I can recall. No, I've never. I've been starstruck a couple times. Like I got starstruck meeting Hulk Hogan a couple years back, but like I wasn't, or, you know, last year I got starstruck meeting the four horsemen, but it wasn't like, I wasn't in tears, but I definitely was like, 
uh, and she was she was like the only thing she didn't do was bribe the handler to get into another spot and to go back to what you were saying where he was drawing the the next chapter they did a time lapse of what I would assume was two to three hours and he sat there with nobody and you can see the time lapse of Baltimore because he's normally in the same spot Baltimore like right there on a, a corner and you just see thousands of people just bustle by quick 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 because it's a time lapse video and he went and finished a full body Scrooge commission for the next chapter and not one person came up to talk to him but then like you said they click over flip over and he's in a tower reminds me of like a Rapunzel tower this just giant circular tower looking thing like the line is going up and it's out and down the building and he's a rock star and they just it just blows my mind that he was right like I, I don't know know what else to say, but he's charming, but he's also an old curmudgeon. All of, it's very weird. He, he is Scrooge. <laughs> like we talked about. He he is he, he is, is Scrooge. And the hair, the glasses, the persona that he portrays at least in the documentary and you know, when I've when I've met him, see him at shows, I think he he's he's just he's Scrooge personified. It's not a bad thing or a good thing. Him. And I think that's exactly. the fascinating thing. I think, you know, and as they got to the end of the documentary, they don't finish the last portrait, but instead they end with him going, taking the director of the documentary out to his bin, I think, as he called it, his basically the, yeah, his, his, his outdoor. Bin. Yeah. Well, that was the other thing. I, so before we talk about that, when they talked about the impact that Obviously, Barks had on Rosa, but then Rosa's had on other people. When they show the guy with the with with the gold reserves Lego setup, unbelievable. That that he had taken some yeah. Rosa diagrams, which I'm sure from his engineering background, sat down and drew out this elaborate setup that is not just the gold reserve. So that guy made those Legos. I forget how many hundreds of thousands it was, or it was some crazy number of Lego that he took to build it. But it was amazing, absolutely amazing. So they yeah. they get to the end though, and they're talking about. Or he's like, "I don't want you to finish the portrait now. Let's leave it unfinished. Let's go out to this second building." And they go in the building. They see a bunch of pinball machines, and then they go upstairs, and it's like a library. And the he's like, "Are these all comics?" And Rosa said, "Yes." And they're in binders, and he says, "Just pick one." And that guy pulls the binder out and. Travis, he found Batman. He, found, says he pulls Batman. out Batman number one, Batman number two, and Batman number three. And I think if he, if I heard correctly, it said that binder had Batman one through thirty in it. That's bananas. Yeah. And they they were in amazing, yeah. and, and amazing if I, if I listened correctly, Did I not hear him say he had every DC comic published between like forty and seventy or something like that? Yes. And same thing with Marvel. He had every published comic up through late 70s, early 80s. That blew my mind. I never knew that he loved the medium so much. Like, it, I, I was happy to see it, but then I also felt bad. I'm like, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I hope he's got some sort of security, <laughs> but like, yeah, that's priceless. I, I, like, you know, like, 
John, that's yeah, a building yeah, in your city. I, I, I was actually talking <laughs> to my dad about him because I'm not sure where he lives. It was hard to tell based on what they showed you. Yes, he's surely got to have a, a major amount of insurance. I thought his perspective on the collection was really interesting and in saying, you know, I, yeah, I recognize this stuff's probably worth something, but I don't care because it's mine. You know, it's what I want it to be. And, and I thought that yeah. was really refreshing. You know, he's not he's obviously not done it to invest. I thought it was great that he basically took whatever monies that he got at convention selling prints that he would just put into comic. And basically, yeah, it's, it's like funny it's money. Just, I'm, I'm, funny I'm putting money it back to money. a creator or back into the industry. I thought that was incredibly refreshing. It was kind of cool because he dealt with some dealers that we see a lot. Uh, the heroes uh, aren't hard to find guys out of Charlotte and a couple other guys I, you see it all every year. Obviously, he's known these people for years, and so it, it was kind of cool that he talked about, you know, I'll see a few books, I'll ask him to hold them for me, and then he just pulls out the wallet at the end of the weekend and throws down the money. <laughs> that was tremendous. Yeah, like what you were saying, you know, with the with the funny money, you guys, this is just fake money. This print, I don't have anything in. I'm just going to take it and go, you know, you saw him pull out his own list and he, of what he was looking for, and then to go back and fill his holes and he at the heart of everything is a comic collector and it that's where don rosa as a person just he just boggles my mind because he just it's very steve ditko but he is he's a steve ditko that talks does that make sense well he's out and about yeah i, I think yes he he's he's very opinionated he's very specific However, His way or the highway, yeah, there's yeah. no debating. However, he, you know, again, he's also given back to some extent, giving back to the community or making sure that, you know, he's putting putting money in and just does his thing. And I, I think it's fascinating. I, like I said, when this, when the documentary was over, I, I looked at Heidi and I said, what'd you think? She's like, oh, it was amazing. And again, it was certainly a very different perspective than I had on him. I think having... Uh, someone that obviously was a huge fan uh, in the director and and having it and having that international perspective was good too and that it you know we you and I know who he is I think some of our friends have heard the name or you see him at shows but you really start to appreciate the fact that this guy has done some really amazing stuff in the industry and for these for these characters and has done it on his terms he stood up to the giant Disney machine and he knows he didn't win, but in the end he, he gets the last laugh. I would assume other than, I mean, he gets the last laugh, but not the paycheck. <laughs> any, uh, any closing thoughts or any, you know, other ideas about or things that you saw there? I, I, unfortunately I have not watched the extras. I don't know. Was there anything there that was really cool or kind of stuck out? I didn't get to watch any of the extras. I was so, say, enthralled, but I, I liked the documentary so much that I watched it twice. The funny thing, it kind of goes with this year's conversation that I had with with Don when we were talking about uh, when he was doing your Captain Kentucky is, and this makes sense now, I didn't put this piece together until seeing the, the documentary, but Jim Cornette, famous Louisville, Louisvillian, Louisville, resident of Louisville, also has a comic collection that is equivalent to Don Rosa. I listened to Jim Cornette's podcast and, you know, he made the news. Uh, his mom 
bought him Amazing Fantasy 15 for a couple hundred dollars when he was a kid. And Jim sold it to a local collector before it got super big for, I think, fifteen to $20,000. And, you know, in Jim's mind, that was all profit and, and whatnot. But, you know, this year while we were talking, I said, hey, you know, there is another comic collector in in Louisville, another celebrity. And I was wondering if you'd ever really cross paths with him. He, Don stopped and he looked at me and it was like the first time that you could tell that he was interested in something that I had to say, or it was something that he hadn't answered a million times <laughs> because he's probably talked to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he just had that look. He looked over with, looked over his glasses at me, like, tell me more. And I said, well, his name's Jim Cordette. Have you heard of him? He said, well, no. I said, well, he was a famous manager from the NWA and wrestling down at the garden. And he goes, oh, I'm familiar with that. And I said, well, he, you know, he talks about buying all of these comics and he has all these comics. He goes, well, I don't know him, but I do remember some spoiled little snot brat named Jimmy Cordette. I said, yeah. <laughs> And his dad died, and because his dad died, his mom spoiled the hell out of him and was buying all these comics. And bought him, he bought a Superman 1 out from under me. And Superman 1, how does that get to Louisville, John? Like, <laughs> how, why don't you have it? Well, these gentlemen have 20-plus years on me. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> this is true. But it it was just funny, like, how... He didn't know that Jim Cornette was a world-renowned wrestling manager, but he remembers the little snot-nosed Jimmy Jimmy Cornette that bought a Superman one from out from under him. So another story, and I I think we covered it in this year's Baltimore recap. John, you are now the influencer of uh, Captain Kentucky International Commissions because when there were three people behind me from, from different countries. And they saw me getting a commission of Captain Kentucky instead of a Uncle Scrooge or Donald Duck. They looked and they went, now, wait a minute. Well, I want that. So kudos to you, John. You've uh, now put original art and commissions of Captain Kentucky in other places in the world other than Louisville, Kentucky. I'm glad to have been part of that. It was... Uh... <laughs> You know, I obviously have really fond memories of Captain Kentucky and, and again, a character that focused on the city and, and the area where he grew up and where I grew up and just a lot of love for. And again, I'm so glad that you learned about this documentary to begin with and that then you sent me your DVD to watch because it was, it really was, it was so well done that I think if I was not a fan, I would really appreciate it. I think obviously growing up there, being familiar, having read the Gladstone books and having been a fan, you know, as a younger person made me appreciate that much more. But I think anybody that listens to our show and is in the comic community should check it out because it is, it's very well done. It's very educational. It may even get you to check out the Scrooge books if you haven't before. Yeah. And, you know, cheap plug, Fanagraphics has completed the entire Don Rosa collection in hardcovers. Uh, there's 10 volumes. You can get them through in-stock trades, Amazon. They're normally 30 to 40% off. And 
this month, I'll, you know, I'll date us in the February previews, they are releasing the first of two volumes of the life and times of Scrooge McDuck, but it's going to be like an annotated edition to where it's going to not just have those 12 issues, but the little side stories that he later published. It's going to have his notes very similar to uh, like the annotated uh, Sandman from Neil Gaiman. So, you know, I, I recommend it. It's 15 to 22 bucks on any sort of discount. They're hardcover books. They're out there and it it's, they're great reads. So I, I highly recommend one, the documentary and then, then two going out and reading it because you'll enjoy it and it's good comics and find what you like and, and read it. I think the greatest recommendation this documentary gets is from the shortest guest appearance that it has, but Steven Spielberg shows up and talks about reading the Carl Barks stories as a kid and how many people try to tie that to Indiana Jones? I think there's there's something there. Oh, and yeah. so again, you know, for for those of you that haven't ever read any of these things, you should because it's not it's definitely not Disney. It's not Ducktales. These are stories told, you know, with human things with animals. It, it's I can't recommend it enough. I really really enjoyed it. I thought it was fun when it said at the beginning, it said Steven Spielberg for 15 seconds or whatever it was. But the fact that he even talked about how how <laughs> critical or how key those stories were in his childhood and his growth, it ought, it ought to tell you something. It's a, it's a very unknown piece of pop culture, comics and pop culture. Well, I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it, Travis. And again, thank you for finding it. Thank you for getting it over to me. I think we've, we've, we've talked about it quite a bit. Any, uh, or how can the listeners that don't know you, which I can't imagine at this point, people listening don't, but maybe we pick up some Don Rosa fans or Scrooge fans that find us. How's the best way for them to find you out there? Uh, I'm on all of your social media, Facebook as my name, Twitter, T Fowler one. Hey, if you want to be a link up, on business, I'm on LinkedIn. The The documentary can be purchased. I think they're backordered right now on thescroogemystery.com. They have DVD and or Blu-ray. I highly recommend going to to pick that up and enjoy it. And uh, that's it. Well, you can find me at hrsocialrpodcast.podbean.com. It is the other show that I do. And you can always find us at starjoes.com. I'm not going to go through all the different ways to find us. Those of you that know us, you know where to find us. Those of you who haven't, go to starjoes.com. You can find everything there. We want to thank again, Ryan, for letting us do this, for letting you t letting us take over an episode. Yes. I can't believe it still. Travis, I don't know about you, but uh, again, unless he does some audio magic after me, he's not on this show. <laughs> I love Ryan. I was very nervous because you sent me that text because I, I did. I wanted to talk to somebody about this. I thought it was too good not to. And then you go, hey, do you have any idea of how you want to get this out? And I went, nope. I just want to talk about it. And then I thought, well, I got to go ask Ryan. And then it's like when you're trying to, I don't know, ask the father for the, your, his daughter's hand in marriage. Like there's a chance he can say no. And it's like, well, crap. Now what do I do? 
So I sent Ryan a, a text message and he responded and he said, I think it's a great idea. I, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts and I think it, it would be a great idea. Go for it. And I did a uh, rally's cha-ching, yes, and uh, sent you the the approval and here we are. Well, again, Ryan, thanks for letting us do it. We're not going to end like we normally do because we didn't talk about any of our normal stuff, but tune in next time and, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.